Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. There's an ambitious new David Bowie documentary called Moon Age Daydream, coming out in theaters September 16th. It was directed by Brett Morgan, who did the excellent Kurt Cobain documentary Montage of Heck back in 2015. And just as he had access to Kurt Cobain's archives, he was given access to David Bowie's archives by his estate. So today's episode is all about David Bowie. First, I want to play a conversation I had with Andy Green about David Bowie's final years, which were fascinating and fruitful and tragic and awe-inspiring. And then you're going to hear an interview I did with the legendary Nile Rodgers, where he talks about working with Bowie on Let's Dance and more. But first, here's my conversation with Andy Green, where we focus on Bowie's final 13 years or so, beginning with the heart attack he suffered on stage during the reality tour. Look up here. I'm in heaven. It's a final act like no other rock star it ever had. Because first there was total silence. Then there were two albums released out of nowhere that were brilliant, especially the second one, Black Star. I still think that album, it remains one of the greatest late period rock albums ever and when you consider it's a final statement a goodbye statement it becomes all the more incredible and also two music videos that were i mean honestly some of the greatest music videos i've ever seen they're directed by johan rank and they were for the song black star and for the song lazarus and i think there's enough stuff in those videos to be studying for years encoded messages the black star one has rank admitted to me there's all this alistair crowley imagery in that video and all these references to Bowie's past, the documentary gets into this as well. There's there's Major Tom. Major Tom. He finds a skeletal astronaut and that's a character he'd been going to for his whole career. And at the very end, he finds him dead in space. Exactly. So there's just so much going on. And then on top of that, there also was the play Lazarus, which also I think I loved Lazarus. We saw it just after Bowie's death. It was so tremendously moving. It's not actually the kind of thing that I might ordinarily like. It was super avant-garde, super abstract, super bizarre. I saw it four times. I was obsessed with it. (laughs) That's pretty good because that's a a large portion of the number of shows that were done total. I was at the first preview. It blew my mind. The story is impossible to follow and almost makes no sense, but the music is so great. I viewed it as Bowie's last concerts in a way because he picked the band, he helped make the arrangements. It was he was so involved with it. Incredibly moving, incredibly cryptic, and I I think there's definitely more decoding to be done based on all the insane mystical symbolism in that play as it ties into the symbolism of these music videos. And to hone back into the music videos, so many of the people who were working with Bowie in his final years but we told him, like, like I'm sick and, and I'm probably dying. And these videos, just as Black Star the Album does, incorporate that fact in an incredible way. And I think let's hear a little bit of what Johan had to tell me about what it was like to both craft these videos with Bowie in his final months. And also, at the beginning of the interview, he's talking about what it was like to, even for himself, to revisit the videos in the wake of Bowie's passing. So let's hear what he had to say. I mean, to be honest, they changed their appearance to me as well, of course, you know. Um, after, after Monday, I mean, he told me about his condition last summer, but because we were already working together when he started talk- on other things, when he started talking to me about these videos, you know. And, and early in on that process, 
you know, when we have started to exchange ideas and throwing, you know, starting to have a very playful and, uh, you know, or should we call it really pure process of creation, of, of figuring out what this video should be. He, he emails me and says, look, I need to Skype with you today. I hop, hop to Skype and he, he looks me in the eyes and says, you know, look, I really have to, I've been thinking this over and I really have to tell you something. And that is that I'm very ill and that I might not make it. And this is sort of July of last year, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something that's very hard to take in when you're sitting on a Skype call with, with somebody that you've only known for a couple of months, you know, and that, uh, that, uh, you know, who obviously is the man he is. Yeah. On, on all levels of that, you know. So, uh, so, so I did know about it all along, you know, but, but I still, <laughs> It still changed how I looked upon the videos after after Monday. Yes. Yeah. People were very focused on Lazarus, but Black Star as well. And you, I think Black Star even more, to be honest. You know, I think Black Star is is, is more a requiem than than than, than Lazarus. That's that's my view on it, actually. That's interesting. How how come? Because I think I think that Black Star to me now is more of the requiem in terms of t t talking about an aftermath and talking about the past tense and talking about the before and the after in a very sort of clear way and and talking about even about legacy to some extent you know um and and i really feel that it you know that that black star is uh, is a different type of hit i find lazarus a much more direct piece that to some extent is dealing with a deathbed situation, whereas Black Star to me is more uh, the, 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 the the narrative. I mean, and here's the, here's the thing, you know, when we, when we were in the midst of making Black Star, he hits me up and say, look, I actually have another song that I want to make a video for, uh, and he sends me Lazarus. And I, and he says, I want a very, very simple performance for this video. That's all I want. Nothing, you know, nothing, uh, too impressionistic or anything like that. I want a simple performance. And I said, well, sure, let me just sort of wrap my head around this. And I listened to, listened to the song and I thought about it. And, you know, I was honestly, you know, obviously still aware of his, his condition. And, and, you know, every now and then he would be out of play for a day or two because he was in treatment and he would be very, very, um, honest about this. He would say to me, look, you know, we can talk today, but Monday and Tuesday I'm going to be out, and then I'm going to feel a little bit better on Wednesday, and then better Thursday, you know, increasingly better until next Wednesday when I go to treatment again, or mm. whatever, you know. So we had these little slots when, when things were going well. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm a hugely optimistic person uh, by nature, and, and in this particular case, I think there was a, there was a degree of denial also when he spoke. When he spoke about these things, you know, when, when, you know, last summer he would, we would have his com co Skype conversation about possible replacements shouldn't he be uh, around to do the video, you know, for Blackstar, you know, these kind of things occurred. But, you know, around me, most of the similar cases of, of this horrendous disease was defeated, you know. I just worked with, with John Hurt, uh, the actor on a, on a, on a long project for a year. And to it, in which towards the tail end of it, he got pancreas, cancer in the pancreas. And he, and, and by the time we were working now, he was declared, you know, that the cancer was in remission and that he was fit. 
So I kind of had this sort of slightly naive, I presume, but also very optimistic view on this disease. And I understood that, that David had to sort of hope for the best and prepare for the worst. So these videos were part of David Bowie's goodbye statement. And Bowie crafted his final years like his final months as a piece of art as he crafted so much else. And I think, you know, you have to be wary of being in awe of rock stars and artists. We've learned a lot recently that everyone's extremely fallible and you can get bitten pretty hard. But I can't help being in awe of David Bowie, especially after I talked to so many people who work with him and really got a sense of how magical he could be. But on a human level, you have to be in awe of someone who is facing death and made great art. And not just one piece of art, but a musical, an album, two great music videos. Right, Andy? Yeah, and he made them simultaneously. In the final months of his life, he was doing Black Star during the day and doing play stuff in the evening or vice versa. He was working around the clock because he knew his own clock was ticking. And when people on the play, when they'd say to him, hey, you know, I think we need a few more months, he'd say, no, now, now, it has to happen now. He was very aware of how little time that he had left. And the fact that he made it to the opening of the play and to the weekend that the album came out is pretty extraordinary. It's like he wouldn't die until it was all set up right. So the Lazarus video has Bowie in a bed. Yeah, it's a bed that looks to be like a hospital bed or a deathbed almost, and he has a bandage over his eyes and buttons, and he's grabbing at the sheets. So he's he had found out he was dying. Same week they shot that video, he found out that cancer had spread too far, that there's no chance of survival, and they stopped treatment. And there he is in a bed, singing about being in heaven. And then at the end he of that video, he disappears into a closet that sort of looks like a coffin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when that was suggested to him on set, this is from uh, the story I wrote, he laughed. Bowie loved the idea. And he said, you know, that'll really keep him guessing. You know, again, the presence of mind to, on the one hand, you're a human being dying. You have a, a family. And on the other hand, you're still a showman and an artist to literally the very end, even down to the release of Black Star right before his death. Yeah, it's incredible. And he managed to do all these things in secret that until they announced the album, there wasn't even a tiny rumor he was working on an album. He, in the age where everybody knows everything at all times, he had everything on absolute lockdown. What else, what were your other big takeaways from the documentary? The prologue about the reality tour was very interesting because I love that tour. I think that the best concerts I saw in my life were Bowie in 2003 and 04. And one of my great musical yeah. regrets is not seeing that tour. It really uh, kills me. That's a bummer. I saw in Cleveland and Pittsburgh and oh my God. But they had camcorder footage from behind the scenes of that tour. And you see him at a truck stop in Montana. Love this part, yeah. And him and Earl Slick are competing in a claw machine game to win <laughs> stuffed animals. <laughs> And to see David Bowie at this truck stop in the middle of nowhere, and they turn the camera to this stack of like cassette tapes, and you see Quiet Riot, you see like Christopher Cross, and then there's Tin Machine and there's Lodger there, and Bowie sees those and is just laughing his ass off. Yeah, the album's 
that did not sell ended up there. Yeah. And he, he seemed at peace with himself. But then, as we know, he was starting to feel fatigued. It's one of those things that was too much of a good thing. The tour was great, so they kept adding more dates, adding more dates. And I, it's hard not to imagine that some of the fatigue was kind of a foreshadowing of what would happen. And, uh, you know, he was he was on stage and he felt intense pain and it turned out it was a heart attack, but they misdiagnosed it. They thought he had a pinched nerve in his shoulder. So then he played another show, yeah. made it all the way through the show. You can go online and hear the show and, you know, he, he hit his final big note, nailed the note, yeah, walked it, down the stairs. Which song was it? It was Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, Ziggy, Ziggy played guitar, hit the high note on guitar, walked down the stairs of the stage, and once out of the view of the audience, promptly collapsed. Ziggy played guitar. I mean, <laughs> again, I mean, he, he did an entire arena show post-heart attack. And waited till he was off stage to collapse. Kind of an incredible guy. And after that, Bowie disappeared in a way from the public eye. In a weird way, he didn't yeah, disappear. It was in phases. Yeah. It was, the heart attack is in June 04. Right. By 05, he's at Fashion Rocks. He's playing with Arcade Fire. He's popping up at shows all the time. In 06, he's on stage with David Gilmore. He performed at Hammerstein Ballroom with... Alicia Keys, and they announced a comeback concert. I got a press release saying... For the Highline Festival, yeah, right? Yeah, because they announced him as the curator, and they said the festival will culminate with a huge concert by David Bowie in New York. But between 04 and 06, he was around. I saw him at a charity dinner. I was like two feet from him. And then after 06 until 13, he was gone. Yeah. I would say one mystery that remains... Mm-hmm is what happened there. And well, you'd have to assume that perhaps another heart attack or You would something. think he had a health scare, but every six months, there'd be some sort of film premiere with his son or an event that was with Amon. He'd walk the red carpet. So he was around. He just completely went dark. And yet began recording in secret for a new album. Right. By 2010 or so, he started to make demos, I think. But at the same time, he enjoyed this quiet life. One of the things he did was he would walk around New York holding a Greek language newspaper. And it was an amazing trick. He told friends about this. Basically, if anyone recognized him, they would think he was a Greek guy who happened to look like David Bowie. Yeah. So, and he'd go to the film forum and then sneak into another movie. And the Angelica, where, where he lived like a block away. And he was just he, he had a he had a young daughter. Yeah, I he think was, yeah. I think that's the thing that when Duncan was born in nineteen seventy one, like he was gone. He was never around. So he had this daughter in two thousand and he wanted to be a dad for once. And he told he told musicians on the reality tour, even before the heart attack, that his intention was to stay home and be a dad. Mm-hmm. And so this must have just doubled and tripled that conviction, you know, and in the play Lazarus, a young girl plays a very significant part, and the people behind the play told me that they thought it was no coincidence that the girl was the same age as his daughter. There's this yeah. thing, basically, like the part of the plot of the play Lazarus is about 
sort of a young girl redeeming this like of course he's an alien in the play but yeah. this like alien who's dead inside but this young girl provides him with hope and, and a reason to live and I read a lot into that I thought that was really yeah. interesting I think it needs to be said that the play is a sequel to the man who fell to earth indeed so it's a really weird thing <laughs> listen there's motifs he returned to that alien character obviously meant a tremendous amount to him I mean he wrote all those instrumentals in the 70s uh, were sometimes supposed to represent his interior state the yeah. aliens interior well, state and the number of songs he wrote through his whole career about aliens and astronauts and then to do a play about one and use zero of them <laughs> right well there was a bit where a rocket ship was drawn on the stage in chalk a tape it, yeah, right, and tape, sorry. And, and it, which, by the way, calls back to his period of making Kabbalistic symbols on the floor of his apartment in Berlin when he was all coked out and, and also strung up on like mysticism and Kabbalah and Crowley, which is what I was referring to earlier. There's all this incredible coded stuff that I think awaits a serious scholarly analysis. I don't know if we'll ever get it. But it's, I think what we're seeing now especially with this documentary coming out. I don't think we're ready to let Bowie or even his final years go. I think there's been so many rock and roll deaths and so much just turmoil in the world that it's easy to kind of take your eyes away from Bowie or even to sort of forget about Blackstar because there's been so much great music. But you, you should not forget that. It's rare to hear something, especially from a veteran yeah. artist, that actually sort of almost knocks you right. out of your chair. I remember I was doing a story on this. So they called me to the studio, and I had no idea it was a jazz band. I knew nothing. And the song comes on. I'm like, what the hell is this? It just blew my hair back. Yeah, I, I would say it's you know a, a better Radiohead song than Radiohead had done yeah. in a while in some ways. And when I interviewed Tony Visconti, he told me the first cut of it was longer then Apple said that they don't sell songs that are shorter than 10 minutes for a separate sale. So Bowie was furious but refused to make a single edit. So it's it's like 9.58. Yeah. One of the creepiest songs he ever did, which is funny, and there's a reference to the Village of All Men, which sounds so ominous and weird. And actually, Johann Rank told me that he asked Bowie, like, "What is the Village of All Men?" And Bowie laughed and said, "I have no idea." Yeah. <laughs> and he was actually hesitant to tell me that because he felt yeah. it was revealing. So, and that brings up an interesting point, which is that there's so much humor also on the album Black Star. You know, she hit me like a dude. Where the fuck did Monday go? Where the fuck did Monday go? And he sounds so amused with himself as if he thinks it's as funny to hear David Bowie singing these lines as we do. And again, in the face of, you know, impending death, it's pretty incredible yeah. that he kept the sense of humor. But we should talk about the sort of making of that album, which... It's also extraordinary in that he, he got this young jazz band yeah, to be his backing band. Because on his previous album, which was the next day, it was his old touring bandmates, which was standard. And yet the same producer, which was Tony Visconti, he went a very different direction and got sax player Donnie McClaskin and his band. This is a band that plays at small jazz clubs around New York City. He told Donnie McClaskin that it's his dream, David Bowie said, it's my dream to do some songs with, with your band. And the guy, like, literally, he says in the documentary, he sort of could not believe what he's hearing, you know, because it's so hard 
to get in your head the difference in worlds between one of the most famous rock stars who ever lived and this incredibly gifted but obscure jazz band and for him and it also was an incredibly generous move but it wasn't just it wasn't really generosity it was that he heard these guys and realized they could bring something extraordinary to his music a theme of his whole career is to find the most talented collaborators whether that's Mick Ronson or Brian Eno or Trent Reznor or James Murphy or whoever he has he had this crazy ability to latch on to super talented people and get the best out of them well, I wrote in, in the intro to a, a portrait of Bowie, not to tout myself, but it is where I've done a lot of my Bowie thinking recently, that he had just this uh, amazing, simple revelation. If you want to change your sound, just yeah. change the band. <laughs> right. There are figures like Elton John and people who were not big fans that saw him as a vampire almost that would just suck the blood out of these people. But I think that's unfair. He was always finding talent. There's a similarity to sampling in a way. There's mm-hmm. a similarity to Kanye West or, or you know someone like that where it's like, yes, if you hear something you like, or Drake now, Drake who likes to, when he first heard Migos, his instinct is like, get me on that. you know. Right. Or when he hears some new style a Brit, a British rap, either get the guys to rap on your album or kind of do something in their style or both. But it's this thing where Bowie's method of sampling, if he liked, you know, Philly Soul, he would just get the Philly Soul guys and here, come play with me, you know. But he would do it, I think, in a spirit of generosity and collaboration. And I think we're going to hear that. We're going to play an interview I did with Nile Rodgers of Chic. And Nile goes deep into how that worked, how he made Let's Dance, which is basically like get Nile Rodgers and get Nile Rodgers to do what he does and see what comes of it. And bring in Stevie Ray Vaughan. These just, things are so incongruous. And separately, yeah. yeah. And, and separately bring in Stevie Ray. And that's the thing. It's a great example because it it shows how he was so much himself to the end. Yes, if he essentially discovered Stevie Ray Vaughan, he gave Stevie Ray Vaughan his big break. And Stevie Ray Vaughan has nothing to do with David Bowie stylistically. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan <laughs> is, unless David Bowie is the least rootsy, least Texas, least bluesy rock star who ever lived. And yet he discovered Stevie Ray Vaughan, put him on Let's Dance. And he was going to actually be his touring guitarist. That did not work out for complicated reasons. So right now I wanted to play an interview I did with Nile Rogers, talking in great depth about meeting David and making Let's Dance. So let's hear what Nile had to say. You met David Bowie in a nightclub. And you bonded, and pretty soon after... He said, how about producing my album? Is that pretty much what went down? <laughs> Maybe not in those exact words. <laughs> he, he threw a lot of darlings in there, but yeah, something like that. At that very beginning moment, what idea did he have of, of the album? Um, this is interesting because we didn't have an idea of the album at the beginning. What we did, and it's actually the only time I've ever done this in my life, you know, David was really cool, man. So he had just come off of Scary Monsters. And I had just come off of an album that was pretty scary. That wasn't going to sell. I knew it wasn't going to sell. And, um, and we met... And we talked about jazz, and that's all we talked about, jazz. I mean, just, you know, we never talked about 
Hendrix or Clapton or Jeff Beck or anything like that. It was just jazz, jazz, jazz. <clears throat> and then so we started going to different libraries and different uh, repositories where they had lots of records because in those days we were still dealing with vinyl. So we went to the Library of the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. They had a nice collection there. We listened to a lot of jazz. And then we went to... What kind of stuff specifically? Um, big band. We were really into big band stuff. <clears throat> and I think um, this is a guess on my part. So, you know, this is not Bowie's words. But I think the reason why he liked big bands um, was because... He seemed to like um, the counter lines that would, would going that that would accompany a big band. Like so, if you ju- if you just had a regular song, you know. So we were listening to different big bands, and then we went over to Jerry Wexler's house. Jerry Wexler was uh, the co-founder of Atlantic Records. Jerry had a copy of Peter Gunn lying on the the turntable or something and david said let's listen to this and we listened to peter gunn and it was the funniest thing it was like instantly we listened to the whole record because it was just it wasn't just peter gunn it was like tv theme songs Uh you know but the theme song to peter gunn went Ba da boo babble 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 ba Dwena Boo 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 boy 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 So when when I did the chart for Let's Dance and I remember how much he was digging that when we were playing it. So when I did the charts for Let's Dance, it goes Dun 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 I took that exact lick right from Peter Gunn. I took that too. And, um, you know, I had a sync clavier. I could have sampled it and all that kind of stuff. But I wrote out the part and the horns played it. And, and, and I voiced it the same, but I had um, different... Uh, eh. I copied it. <laughs> I wanted to say, yeah, I did a little, I copied it, I copied it. Yeah, what the hell. Well, Let's Dance was kind of the 80s version of Young Americans in some way, you know, in, in the sense that he was trying to do something more rhythmic and pop. Yeah, it always makes me feel uncomfortable to say stuff like this because a person would take it the wrong way. So let's try and look at it from my perspective. Sure. That record I made. Period. End of story. I mean, yes, David sang. Yes, he wrote songs. And But basically, the way we made the album, here's what we did. We had a brand new studio at Power Station Studio C, and it had a really nice lounge. He went into the lounge. I made a record. He would walk in after we cut the track, and he would listen, and he'd give a nod of approval. I never once had him say, do that song again. He never said that. Hmm. If you, you, look at all the years that have gone by. You've never heard the, you know, outtake of Let's Dance. And uh, <laughs> we, we did it like a black record. And the way that black records were done in those days is 
we didn't have studios locked out. We didn't have budgets like rock and roll bands had. You know, like our albums would cost like thirty thousand dollars to make. Right. So David came in. We played the song. He listened. Boom. Right. Good. Great. Next one. Played it. Listen. Boom. Right. Next one. Right. Next one. The only thing that we um, sort of went back and forth over was a song that we created in the studio. Um, and I think that was Ricochet. Like bees on a rock face, waiting for the sign. Ricochet. Um, we wrote that in the studio because I remember it was the very first time in my entire life that I did a recording session where I didn't have the charts written before we got there. Mm. It's like, I, I, you know, he came up with this riff and then I had to write out the charts right there in, on the spot and say, okay, here's how it goes. Because usually I like to sit at home and do an arrangement, a proper arrangement. But because it just happened right there, I had to do the charts. And in... Um, I think it was Lenny Pickett or somebody said a phrase I had never heard in my life before, and I've been making music forever. He said, hey, Niall, why don't you just do head charts? And I was like going, mm. what the hell is a head chart? I'm like, to me, I'm like a, I'm a hippie. Like, to me, head, a head is like a person who does acid. Like, a head <laughs> chart, like, oh, wow, man, let's do head charts, man. You know that, that'd be cool. Like, like, so I know what I want you to play, but you have to read my mind, man. So I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Because we were, we were very organized, the school that I come from. I mean, it's like you come in, read the charts, do that, go to the next song, read the chart. Um, so Bowie fell right into my world. That was my world. He didn't know one musician on that album other than me and Steve Ray Vaughan. He never heard of Omar Hakim, didn't know anybody. He was like, who's playing keyboards on my album? Who's, who's singing backgrounds on my album? Who are these guys? And it, this, this is exactly what David wanted. He, he said he wanted me to make hits. And how do I make hits? I'm the boss. I write the charts, I write the songs, tell everybody what they're doing, and they, they do it. And there's, there's no nothing, no arguments, there's no, we all have fun. Everybody that works with me has the time of their lives and they just do what I say and they go and we're, we're done. Um, and then he brings this guy, Stevie Ray Vaughan, who we, none of us had ever heard of. And Stevie saw the camaraderie that we all had, right? So it was like David by himself in the room, not because he was weird, just because he didn't know anybody. So he was by himself in the room um, and then everybody would go in and talk to him, you know, after they finished playing their parts. And, um, but Stevie saw that we were all friends. So all the musicians were Niles musicians. So Stevie Ray Vaughan did the coolest thing in life. So David had to pay for this album himself, right? This, we, neither of us had record deals. Mm. This was, I mean, can you believe it? David Boy was dropped. That's, so everybody, rock and roll got dropped, pal. <laughs> hence, <laughs> hence the desire to make a commercial record, right? That, that's the missing piece. Maybe. Here. maybe yeah, I mean. <laughs> maybe. I, you know what? Because, see, I'm not so sure because we talked about that. You, it's funny. You may have just touched upon something I never thought of, that maybe he wanted a hit because he was dropped. I never thought about that. Um, he just was dropped. We all get dropped. 
But um, anyway, Stevie, you were saying did the cool thing. Yeah. So what Stevie did was he saw how much we all got along, and David, uh, to keep the costs down, he would buy our food in the morning because we were just we were plowing. Like I said, this is like a black record. There was no like sitting around with a bunch of girls all day and drinking and no, nah, no way. We get there and leave. It, you know didn't have the session blocked out for like months at a time none of that we did the record in 17 days start to finish so here's how our day would start when we arrived at the studio we would order our lunch so that when we took our break we could just eat and then go right back to making the record right, right. so no downtime so stevie checked that out right so this is what he did this shit is cool so what he did was before he played, the, so he didn't have to play that today, right? Because he did overdubs. So before he played, he got on the phone and called some joint called Sam's Barbecue in Dallas. <laughs> no, Austin, in Austin, Texas, Sam's Barbecue, and had them send up like this shipment of barbecue. <laughs> and like in a day or so, it arrived, and it was like the most awesome barbecue ever. And Stevie Ray treated everybody to lunch. And the camaraderie was like, bro, you're in. Come on over here. Come on. You're part of the guys. And from that moment on, he was part of the crew. And um, and I, I love, love Stevie like a brother. I mean, when he passed away, I'll never forget it. You know, when, when, when his mother said to me, um, Niall, I want you to do the eulogy. And I'm sitting there like, next to Jimmy and his mother says Niall I want you to do the eulogy and Jimmy goes yeah you're good at that <laughs> like, okay. the last place I want to be is a funeral what do you mean I'm good at that I suck at that but, um, but what was what was Bowie thinking that this thing we were saying before that on the face of it made no sense to get this to get this dude from Texas playing Albert King licks right. over his, you know, over his pop album that you were making, right. like, like what, what? I mean, it worked, but it shouldn't have. So, what was he thinking? Where did he get that idea? From the incredibly fluid mind of David Bowie, I mean. Nothing could have been more intelligent. Dude, let me explain something to you. So we, we searched around, listening at all these different records. Uh, the part I left out is that we looked at tons of rock and roll iconography. I mean, we were just looking at everything from, I mean, Hapsash and the Colored Coat and Mott the Hoople and peanut butter conspiracy is I mean like ridiculous stuff from the hippiest hippie stuff to the ventures I mean like just every kind of rock and roll record you could think of just we were in it because we're now at a library that's got everything we could just look and chill and just see what we wanted the album to sound like and I didn't know what we were doing actually I honestly didn't know we were just to me we were just becoming friends and having fun and listening to records, which is okay with me. Uh, and then he came to my apartment, he knocked on my door, and he had his hands behind his back like this. <laughs> and, um, and he says, no, darling, this is what I want my album to sound like. <laughs> and it was a picture of Little Richard right. in a red suit 
getting into a red Cadillac, and it was all monochromatic. Richard's hair was like dyed kind of red, suit red, Cadillac red. It was just red. And as soon as David showed me that picture, I understood it as well as like a perfect mathematic equation or a perfectly written sentence. I mean, just perfect. I understood right away in a nanosecond. I thought, oh, he wants a record that sounds like it's from the future, even if we release the record in 3020. Because that's what this little Richard picture looks like. This looks like they just took this picture this morning, and that's a 1960 Cadillac. It, but it looked like they had just taken that photo that morning right out in front of the building. And I knew that he wanted the record to be evergreen, but that's the last thing he wanted me to say. Mm. He didn't want me to say that he wanted an evergreen record. He wanted me to hear it from the way that this thing looked. Does that make any sense it to you? It does make sense. It, it makes so about, much yeah. sense to me. It says a lot about how his brain works as well, of course. It made well, yeah. all the sense in the world to me. And at that moment, um, I described myself as being like the Terminator. At that <laughs> point, psh, I, there was no going back for me. I was focused. I knew the record that we were going to make. And if he felt like he was going off the rails, it was like, uh, David, no. I almost wanted to keep the pop. The, the picture of little Richard in my pocket and say, dude, uh, do you think that sounds like this? Right. You know, <laughs> but I didn't have to. I didn't have to. It was easier than that. Half of the half of those songs had existed before we walked in right. that studio. That's the interesting part. Yeah. Right. So he was now allowing me to interpret music that already exists. So it's like it's it's almost like taking a fully cooked fine meal, a fully cooked it, it's all beautiful, and then you say to the chef, hey, can you make something different out of this? Right. Because <laughs> I don't think that, to him, China Girl sucked. Right. Like I don't think that he, no. he, he thought it sucked, but compared to that little Richard picture, so let, keep it in context now, in other words, had he not shown me that picture, right. I may have made China Girl some hardcore, trashy thing. Right. But once he showed me that picture of this sleek, debonair, not a hair out of place guy, to me that's, that just telegraphed consistency, unity, precision, perfection. You know, it, it was like... Well, it's like whatever... He was giving you make it into that right. <laughs> right. One thing that's really interesting I did want to get to is, uh, you know, I think you helped communicate to him uh, how marginalizing it could be in some ways to be a black artist and how um, access to radio and MTV mm-hmm. didn't feel uh, as easy as as it should be. And he really took that to heart because then a lot of people have been sharing this clip where he, on MTV, I think that year or the following year, he said, you know, where are the black artists on MTV? And yeah. I have to think that came from your discussions with him. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. He was, I, I told him when he asked who the musicians were, I said, uh, these are some of the best musicians I know, and I've had rock and roll bands with all of them. They are the most frustrated guys in the world because they love rock and roll and they don't get a chance to play it. You're giving them the chance to play David Bowie? We're going to kill your shit. <laughs> we are going to kill 
kill your shit. So, true story, let anybody who was around tell you differently. When Tony Thompson came in to play drums, he, I mean, the sound pressure levels in that studio were so hardcore that the lights would dim every time he hit that snare. And this is the power station. This is the power station, right? That shit was going. Phew, 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 phew. I mean, I was like, man, I'm glad I'm not standing in that room. The anger, the and and it wasn't anger that was directed at David. It was anger directed at the industry. It was the fact that this is what we love. We can play this all day long. Give us a chance. David Bowie gave us a chance, and we ripped it. Uh, I was on the road with Kenny Loggins uh, about a year ago, and the front of Footloose is exactly my guitar riff at the beginning of Let's Dance. I mean, the beginning of Modern Love. And I didn't know it. Like every night I would go out on stage and I'd go, why is he playing my shit? <laughs> every night he would go, and I'm go, what's he doing that for? And I would go, all right, everybody foot loose. I was like, oh my God. Well, to be honest, I think that's what we're talking about with the Wham! thing as well, which is that you kind of created this 80s, one of the 80s templates that a bunch of people then kind of used. Oh, okay. I, I think that's oh, okay. really what we're, you well, know, 50s via the 80s kind of feel. You right. Know? So, so you know where all that was coming from was because once David charged me with making a hit, I felt that um, a lot of his songs were lacking in um, ear candy at the top of the compositions. And I explained to him that every song I've ever written starts with the chorus. And he says, really, Why? that's crazy, you build to the chorus. I said, yeah, well, if you're white, you build to the chorus. I said, shit. <laughs> I, I start with the chorus because I know that every guy who's the, the, the uh, promotion man who's going to get your record added at the radio station is going to go home with a pile of records under his arm that weekend, play it for his kids, and the one that the kids say is the record, that's the one he's going to get added next week. So my records go, do-do-do-do, we are family one. Two, ah, freak out, good times, we, like right away. So I said, David, I want the first words out of your mouth to be, let's dance. Oh, really? Really? I don't know. Usually I would build it up and then we'd go, no, no, please, man, come on. Let the first words, like the first words go, freak out. The first words are, we are family. The first words, let's dance. So let's dance turned out to be a hit 11 million seller i mean like insane he never sold anything like that and um and if you notice all the interviews that he had done subsequently very few of them talked about me it's like i'm like sort of like you know because like i don't think that david had anything against me i think that he had what i would call um like like survivor guilt or you know or you know like you're you're so successful like you might be defined by this one record when your body of work is so vast i could me on the other hand i'm thinking like 
I can't wait to kill Let's Dance. Let's do another <laughs> record. Like, let's sell 20 million records. Because I'm thinking, like, if that's how you look at me, and now I've served your job well, sire, <laughs> wouldn't you like me to go kill the next dragon? <laughs> right. You know, so it was weird that, that, that all of that fame and all of that success, he didn't say, Here's my boy Nile, <laughs> the guy I told to do this. You know, mm. it's like it was like, oh yeah, Brian Eno. Oh yes, like <laughs> all right already. You know, all right, I like Brian too. So that there was a little weirdness, and so years went by, and I was getting an award one night, and man, this shows you the David Bowie that I so, so, so love. This is the guy that was sitting at that bar that day. So he comes up on stage to give me the award and he says something to the effect of, ladies and gentlemen, I am truly honored to give this award to Nile Rogers, the only man that can get me to start a song with a chorus. <laughs> and that's our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify when you can. That's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.